Hey y'all, Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. It's hard to know if we're waving or drowning. Let's find out. Welcome to another BritFlix.com podcast. My name's Stuart Wright, and today I've got with me prolific horror screenwriter Pat Higgins. Hello, Pat. Hello, Stuart. It's good to be here. It is. Are you are you in Essex as as I speak to you now? Yeah, I just realised my it's good to be here doesn't really work with kind of distance recording. But well, uh, yeah, it's good to be where I am and it's good to be talking to you as well. I am indeed in Essex at the moment. I'm in South End. You're in South End. So I'm 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 just down the road in old Essex as was before the Wolf and Forest Borough of London was created. Uh, so I'm in Leighton <laughs> in the uh, Oh right, oh nice, yeah, yeah. Yeah, just near me is the old late uh, old Essex cricket ground. Oh, which is which, which is weird. It's weird when when you see that sign. You're like, I mean, I've been I've been to Norway, and in Nor- where, where my wife's from in Norway, um, they've got the old boundaries where Sweden used to dominate them. So it still says Sweden, and I felt right. a bit like that when I discovered that I'm in the place where <laughs> Essex used to be, but now it's Wolf and Forest. I, the, the Essex boundaries are a mystery to me. I, I just I just stick in South End most of the time. Fair enough, fair enough. Well, you're near the sea, aren't you? So everything's yeah, good. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I have everything a man could ever need right here. Who would ever dream of leaving? Well, I well I I venture I venture to the sunny climes of uh, Clacton. Um, one 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 wintry January with my wife. We had a we had a look. Weirdly, it was like it's like weird to go for a winter break to Clacton, but it was. Mm. Uh, but our season, it was lovely, and we, we, we looked out, blue skies, everyone's a winner. I, I've got a lot of love for Clacton. Frinton down the road scares me somewhat. Um, it seemed, as it has no, there seem to be no children, as far as I can tell. There seems to be no one under about 75. There seems that... to be no birds either. Everything is so still. It's like walking through a painting, and it kind of freaks me out. I think the shop windows are bifocal, though. <laughs> <laughs> It's uh, yeah no it's 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 a kind of we did that whole walk up the coast it's a sort of very it's it's like a it's like a transitioning it's like, it's yes. like a, if, if 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 it was a film I'd age as I walked up the coast <laughs> wouldn't I that would be it wouldn't it and and somebody'd give me a mobility scooter when I got there um, but look let's we're going to focus we're going to we're going to talk about a 2016 film that you wrote called The House on the Witch Pit yeah fantastic but what we're going to what what I'll, I mean don't feel like that's that that's the only thing we can talk about because obviously. Uh, for the benefit of the audience that might not know who are listening, 
you, you are Mr. Strippers versus Werewolves, which is as, as catchy titles go. And, <laughs> and if anyone was to search your name on YouTube, they'll find bits of you talking about it. That I, is... I find... Well, you call me Mr. Strippers versus Wells. It is, in fact, <laughs> it, it's it's an ongoing driver of mine, it, and I'm very um, I'm very grateful to that project for meaning that it always pushes me forward to ensure that that's not the thing on my tombstone. Uh, you know, it's like I'm utterly, utterly determined that one day there will be a point in my life where where people will maybe talk to me for ten minutes and go and not go. And he wrote Strippers versus Wells, <laughs> so it'll drive me to to do something of. <laughs> of a lasting cultural impact. Well, in, in a true hero's journey, you'll, at one, you'll, you'll reach an age yes. where you'll thoroughly embrace the fact <laughs> and you'll, no. hug, you'll, hug, that no, man, you'll hug that man or woman in that desert diner and you'll be like, thank you. Um, but that, that brings us to a, uh, maybe a first subject to talk about because it's something you, you've, you've talked about, I've seen you talk about on YouTube before, which is the importance of a title to a horror film. Yes, absolutely. What are your um, What are your thoughts on this? Well, titles mean a lot to me, and I mean, um, strippers versus werewolves because that's the title that that is the the most, I guess, the most memorable title of, mm -hmm. of the stuff that I came up with. Which was then uh, it, I'd, I'd carried that title around. Um, it was a punchline um, back when I did stand up, which was like in the late '90s. That's how long that strippers versus something as, as a B movie title. It wasn't exactly a punchline, but it was a it was a, a sort of a bleak reference in a stand up bit mm. that I did because um, I, I always thought. That, it was those late night sky movies where it was it always seemed to be strippers versus serial killers or strippers versus maniacs dressed as clowns or whatever but they were never called that mm. and i liked the the idea of these incredibly on the nose titles which then actually became very popular around about the time strippers versus Wells came out and suddenly we were in a slew of other movies that were something versus something um but but i, I think that that kind of an eye-catching title i mean that movie was basically it ended up existing because that title was something that made people People talk about it. I guess that's why you know um, I was sort of contacted for the script for it and whatever. At which point, the script didn't really exist. I just sort of banded it as a project title around for years. Yeah. Um, uh, so yeah, uh, project titles can end up driving projects. And in fact, the House in the Witch Pit. Um, has existed as in so many different forms over decades, initially as so many different scripts. And, and now when we made the movie, the movie continues to kind of evolve as well, which is a, a, a strange mirror of it. But I, I liked the title, The House on the Witch Pit, and so that always sort of stuck in my head before that, that script existed. It doesn't always work that way, but I do sometimes find myself ending up with titles before movies. And uh, I think a, a nondescript title can really, really hurt a project uh, in its infancy, particularly for spec scripts. I think if someone's written a, a killer spec script and they've got a very clever one-word title that has a subtle double meaning relating to something in the thing, they're potentially not going to get that amazing spec script written. I think the titles need to be a little bit, uh, a little bit more in your face, particularly for spec scripts. And, and I think a memorable hooky title uh, can really kind of drag people in to at least get them to read the treatment, and then the treatment will hopefully get them to to read the script. No, I think I think that it's it's there's a lot of myth making, obviously, in film, isn't there? Because it's it's opaque and transparent simultaneously, and impossible and easy, and all those things. Yeah. And, and, and you read, you, you know, you get told the legend and then you go, okay, that's the way to do it. And they go, no one can do it like that anymore. And then you yeah, go, yeah. I mean, I, the, the, one that, the one that springs to mind is in terms of that idea of a title in the spec market getting attention was Foot Buddies, 
which then yeah. became, I think, Friends with Benefits in the end. Yeah, absolutely. Obviously, no one's going to release a film called Fuck Buddies. But if you want yeah. someone to read it, it, a bit like the strippers versus werewolf notion, is that when you say the title, the person who's stressed and got a pile of other things to read and decisions to make <laughs> and whatever else, they kind of go, well, I know what that means. I know what I'm going to get now. And I suppose that's where you're kind of helping someone out, I suppose, with that. Simplicity. Absolutely. So when you first, say first production meeting we ever had on that movie, though, where it was obviously producers who'd only ever been interested because of the title, and then mm. read the script and whatever. And the first meeting I ever had, they were like, "Of course, that title won't stay." Oh really? Uh, and yeah, 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 absolutely. They were bandying all sorts of alternatives around. Um, give us, give us, give us, give us a, give us a, give us a B and C title that got that, that you managed to survive not getting. To. <laughs> I probably shouldn't say because because uh, <laughs> someone somewhere would be horribly offended. But um, but yeah, and I just could, I thought that was madness. It was like you know the only reason you read this bloody script is because of that title and the idea that the first thing you do is chop the title off just seems mental to me. Well, but, look, you, um, you, you've already intimated with what. The the way you described the house on the witch pit that this is something that existed in in, in forms and stuff and developed before mm. uh, in terms of what became that script and that title so what what do you recall then as the conception as to what became the house on the witch pit which <laughs> Which yeah, you met, House, which you House of the Witch Pit actually came about. Um, it, it's a very, <laughs> I I'll probably deconstruct my own myth here. Uh, considering that it's actually a, a, a movie where I've tried to keep as many details as possible off the internet. If you look it up on uh, IMDb or whatever, there's no cast list. The first time we ever premiered, the, we premiered the movie, uh, 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 my favourite festival in the world, which is Horror on Sea down in Southend. I had, <laughs> I had, South by End. the way, yeah. sorry, I hadn't, I'd looked and not gone, oh, it says no cast list. I've not actually made that. You basically mm. told me what my eyes had already seen. If, if you I... look down in the trivia bit, it, it sort of says that no details of it have ever been released and that I destroyed the master copy on oh, stage you've gone down the, the spring. Uh, you've gone on the cannibal holocaust route. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. Um, it's, uh, so, yeah, so we screened the movie uh, once. We, we had, like, a, a lovely premiere audience at Horror and Sea, mm. and then I got on stage, destroyed... There was only one... There was the master copy and the backup, and I destroyed both of them. And we did that, for real. I, you know, that wasn't a, a kind of messing around thing. That cut no longer exists. It's very hard to destroy things in the digital age and not have people go, yeah, but it's not really destroyed, is it? And, and obviously, I'd still got all the footage, I've still got whatever, but that cut, the one that premiered, no longer exists. It, it genuinely doesn't. Um, and so then we recut it and we made it available for one day as a rental and then we've wiped that one as well. That one, again, will never be, be kind of seen again. So the movie's carried on uh, evolving in a very strange way, uh, but the script itself... Had, yeah. had done the same thing for, for decades beforehand. The title came about, my wife and I um, used to, uh, we used to live in a flat um, just before, I think it might have even been before we got married, um, and there was a bit down the road that was basically just a wet pit. It was like, it, there should have been buildings, it was buildings all around, and then there was this area that always had scaffolding around it, and it was just this wet pit. Yeah. And in kind of researching it because it was just down the road from us the the legend uh, around it seemed to be that it had been a drowning pool at one point where you know you'd had this sort of horrible process of people killing people because they believed they were witches and certainly 
um, the, it was it was very difficult to research. It was very difficult to find stuff um, about it at the time. Since then, it, uh, things like the drowning pools in uh, in this area have been investigated. But there's a, a, a brilliant local author called Sid Moore who writes a lot of stuff about that and has re- actually wrote a book called The Drowning Pool. Right. Um, but but for us, it was just this fascinating, weird thing where there was this bit of land where, as far as we could remember, no one had ever built on it. And then when you start to find out, all right, well, okay. This this used to potentially be a, a drowning pool, like a pit, effectively full of water, where they would drown people they accused of being witches. And then when they, then further down the line, they did tr- start to build a development on it. And my wife and I always referred to it as the house on the witch pit. Um, uh, okay. Which so it, you know that's actually a, a kind of not exactly mundane explanation, but it, and there was something about that phrase when that came up that I thought we were like that. Mm. <laughs> no, so, no, totally, yeah. So that ended up getting kind of filed. And then the first draft of it I ever wrote, I think I wrote in about 2004, uh, probably okay. just after Trash House, my first movie. Um, and it was really, it was like a warlock knockoff. It was like a sexy witch's kind of, you know, um, that kind of a vibe to it, a slightly campy kind of thing, mm. which was really what I was messing around with a lot in the early days of my career. And that was how it was then. Mm. And then I just forgot about it for years. And I'd always list it in, in titles that are in development or whatever I was talking about, but I, I didn't really so seriously play with it until about 2010, and then I rewrote it completely as a completely different concept, and then again in about 2013, the same title, and again it morphed into a completely different script, and that was kind of what we ended up for filming. The, for the layman, for the layperson listening, when you, when you say you completely rewrote it as a different concept, so mm. all that survived there was the title, The House the title, the yeah, and maybe the odd line of dialogue. I'm, I'm, a, I'm an awful magpie and cannibal when it comes to my own dialogue. Um, there was a script that I was bandying around called Brain Bath uh, oh. in the, the, the sort of mid-noughties somewhere, uh, and nearly every line of dialogue out of Brain Bath ended up in Strippers versus Werewolves. When, okay. uh, when we actually had a... a, a production team that wanted to buy the script for strippers versus Wells, it made me realize that i had to write the damn thing um and so i did that <laughs> sort of fairly quickly uh and that happened by cannibalizing a lot of the good lines from brain bath and so lines from the original draft of uh witch pit or whatever um would have gone forward i, I do kind of ruthlessly pull these things apart and then if a script has to be made whole again because i've already cannibalized it i cannibalize it from somewhere else i like to have several scripts on the on the burner at the same time how do you? I mean, a thing that I've, uh, that a producer I've worked with, he calls it. He calls it ghosts of previous drafts, mm, where yeah. where you're you're reading some action, and because obviously this is all while it's just still on the page, and you begin to realise that you've you've kept stuff in or you've left stuff in, not kept stuff in, you've left it in, which is relevant to a previous draft, but you just mm. haven't moved it on. How do you avo- how do you avoid that kind of you know that the um, the accumulation of stuff that 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 is unnecessary um, now. Man, so, it's so... It, I, I find that... I've recently, in the last couple of years, I've been doing some script doctor work, so okay. um, for if, if particularly producers have optioned a script yeah. and it's not quite working for one reason or another and they just want a, a fresh pair of eyes to kind of take another pass at it and, and work stuff around. Yeah. And that process, rather than... If, if I'm writing something for me, I will obviously produce the entire thing to a draft where I'm satisfied with it before I let another set of eyes look at it. Mm-hmm. With the script doctoring, it's more like... I will change a bunch of stuff and then show it to them and then they will make suggestions and I'll change another bunch of stuff and show it to them and they'll make suggestions and I'll change a bunch of stuff. And what I find there is that by the time that you've gone through that process five times, I'm looking at the script going, I don't remember 
where the hell I am. It's like it's like losing your way in a maze mm. because all of those ghosts of previous drafts. You're going. Is this character? Does this character hate this character in this draft, or are they lovers? Or you mm. know, where you've changed all these things. No, and, no. Uh, and I'm still slightly haunted by the fact that um, I've got a, a script called Killer Apps, which hopefully we're going to be uh, shooting this year. Mm. And uh, in Killer Apps, in a draft of Killer Apps, there is a monologue about a, uh, a thrash band called Buggered by Spiders. And I can... Uh, the that's only almost like I'm... a sub, that's a subgenre there you've just come across, <laughs> which is inventing band names, but carry on. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I love inventing band names. But the, there's a monologue about Buggered by Spiders um, that I know I wrote, mm. and I remember it fondly, and I found a tweet I wrote about the monologue, or it might have been a Facebook post. But either way, at some point I'd mentioned this monologue because I just finished it and I was really pleased with it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I cannot find it in any draft of that script and so every time I like find another hard drive or find whatever I'm like, there's got to be somewhere there needs to be this draft that had that monologue because I know I was so pleased with it when I wrote it but I've got maybe 20 different drafts of that script looking around and every time I open I one of them hate, I think this I, will be the bugger by spiders draft and it never is do you know what that, that is the that's the <laughs> that's the writing equivalent of the the book that you want to find that you can never you can find every book in your house apart from the one you're looking for and files have that habit I'm, I I completely sympathise with that idea of I know I did it as being oh, I've I've got a counter story to it. sorry about it yeah, just crossed my mind because this was one of the most remarkable experiences of my creative career and just in terms of the the counter thing of thinking I I know I've written that and I can't find it. I had an opposite thing to that, which is that another of these titles that I've, I've been knocking around with for years is Chainsaw Fairy Tale. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Chainsaw Fairy Tale, I, I always had this this idea of, of taking a, a kind of Disney aesthetic and slowly morphing it over the course of a narrative into a slasher movie. Mm. So it would start as one thing and become something else. And nice. I, I really like that as, as an idea. Oh, it's nice. But I banded it. I banded it around. You know, you register the domain name, and then you then three years later, you really haven't done anything with it, and you get rid of that and whatever. But um, I had a period. Uh, a few years ago, just after my uh, my son was born, my son didn't sleep uh, for more than about 45 minutes. So for about at a time, so for about six months, I had complete sleep deprivation. And the thing that was interesting about that was that you don't form memories. Uh, at least you know the the way that I don't fully under, you know understand the biology of it, but the synapses of the the, the way that the synapses form memory, or at least, you know, long-term, short-term memory and all these sorts of things, seems to be connected to sleep. So the fact that I'd gone this six-month period where I'd never really slept for longer than 45 minutes on the bounce because my son hadn't, and so he'd kind of woken us up, meant that I had this whole period where I had no, no real memories formed. And then after after that, I was talking to a producer about, and they were, you go through the usual kind of dance of well, what scripts have you got, and what mm. you what you're working on, and what you whatever. And I was bandying these things out, not quite in an Alan Partridge, you know, monkey tennis kind of mm. way, but I was just kind of throwing these things out. And I said, oh, and there's this thing, Chainsaw Fairy Tale, and they said, have you done any work on that? And I suddenly had a pause, and I thought, I think I did try, and and what I thought <laughs> I'd have was maybe a four page treatment. Yeah, I yeah. thought, you know, there's probably a four-page script. So I said, let me get back to you, and I'll dig around and see what I did. Um, and I found, I opened a document, and it was a paragraph. And I thought, no, I'm sure I did a bit more than a paragraph. I'm sure I did. And then I opened another document, and there was a 104-page screenplay that I had no recollection of writing. Get out an of town. Entire, 
104-page feature film screenplay that I had no recollection of from the period where I, I had massive sleep deprivation for six months. Um, did, it so say, to... did it say by you as well on it? Were you, were you, were you, did you have to check? <laughs> yeah. Did you have to check? It, it's definitely me. Oh, my God, <laughs> it's definitely me if you read it. <laughs> but it's me with the brakes off in a really weird way. And, and so reading it back, I was, I was utterly fascinated. I had this joyous experience of actually being able to read my own work with no recollection of having written it, which no, I think writers never get that. You know, I was going to say, you, you sound, it sounds like you've literally written in your subconscious, which, yeah. is the, which is the bit we're all trying to reach into. Absolutely. It's exactly like that. And then the, the, the level to which I don't recall this, which, you know, I think people tend to think I'm winding them up or that, you know, the level to which I don't recall it, there is a four page set piece, which evidently has only been put together because I'm building up to a punchline that I clearly thought was incredibly funny at the time. Right. And so everything about it is horribly convoluted, building up to this one punchline. And the thing was that reading it back, even after, you know, even after coming to terms with the fact that I'd written a 104-page screenplay that I had no recollection of writing, I didn't remember what the punchline was. Even going through the four pages, building up clearly just all siphoning towards this punchline, even that wasn't enough to trigger it in my brain as to what that punchline was. And it, it was a remarkable experience to read that script. I, I, I don't think I could ever let it out into the, the world without some major rewrites. Because I said it's basically just a pipe plumbed into my id and sprayed out into I like, my, you know, I like the idea that you've given yourself as well like a six-month delayed writer's block so you've written this four-page <laughs> thing that's got a punchline and you and you come back to it six months later and you go no can't fix that look what, when you're when you're when you're when you're when you're developing ideas how how much do you rely on the the sort of log line outline to expand upon what you're doing or are you a dive in and see what it looks like i tend characters I tend to try uh, and get a rough framework of the kind of beats that I'm going to hit. I don't want to be incredibly prescriptive about, you know, now we are on page 12, we need a catalyst kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. I do I do go through and kind of block it out fairly broadly. Um, then I'll, then I try and write a, uh, what um, the brilliant writer Jason Arnold refers to as draft zero, um, where you just kind of splurge it out of your head. Mm. Um, and then I tend to look at that and then I'll go and slightly more formally try and slide all the blocks around so that it, it fits at least to a degree what you would expect in terms of conventional narrative mm. so I don't I don't like using it using um, the kind of beat sheet mentality while writing but I do tend to use it before I head off the starting blocks and then revisit it after I've splurged out my first draft um, what, so do you, what do you I'm going to say what do you think is in that sense then what's the importance to you in writing to know the ending, then? Oh, I, uh, my, one of my favourite um, things that I ever came across in a uh, screenwriting book was, I believe this was credited to a guy called Michael Fate Dugan, okay. uh, if I I'll remember correctly. I'll take your word for that. Yeah, he, he did this thing called the uh, Creative Compass, which was just basically north, south, east, west. Mm -hmm. um, and he pointed out, and it's something that's that's incredibly obvious, really, once you uh, once you think about it. But I've never thought about it in these terms, which is that if you're if we kind of subscribe to the idea that our central character is going on a journey and there is an internal conflict, because you need that as the thing between what that character wants and what they need. Yeah. In terms of you know what I mean, in terms of the want being usually something uh, a physical attainment 
and winning a yeah. competition or getting revenge or whatever, and the need being what they need for a spiritual development. Of course. Then if, if you take that on board as your overall arc there are only four possible options which is get both lose both get one or get the other um wow. and you can break yeah, down yeah. every ending of every movie you know if you look at rocky everybody remembers rocky as being this this huge heroic ending but in fact he loses the fight uh but what he gets is it so he, lo- he doesn't get his want but he gets his need and so that is one of you know that's one of our only four options that are really out there and as long as you're you're concentrating enough on character um i've found that a really really useful tool for working out well actually there's only four options that i can go for here um and you know i, I tend to rule out the get both which is the kind of hollywood triumphant ending you know that that's not really on the page for me mm. <laughs> the no. kind of movies i write we ain't really looking at you know get the girl kill the baddies kind of thing mm. um so so yeah so that just leaves us these other kind of options where you've got gets the want doesn't get the need or gets the need doesn't get the want or gets neither mm. um and that I, I think i have used that ever since i saw that creative compass first time i think that has dictated how i've structured my endings quite a lot so i usually have an idea of where it's going although if if the ending catches me on a, a bad mood i may accidentally kill a character or two just through spite <laughs> <laughs> but is that that, that suggests then that maybe you've, you there's a level of malleability in terms of what you might set out with and yeah, then yeah. I guess you could learn through where your characters take you. Oh God, yeah. That, that maybe maybe giving your you maybe giving them nothing or giving them both becomes the yeah, better yeah. better resolution. Does that happen for you? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think sometimes scripts make it fairly clear that what they are is a different beast to what you thought they were. Mm. Um, I did a movie uh, called Hellbride, um, okay. which was like the, it was my second movie that we ever shot, but it was the third one to come out. The the my third movie came out first. We shot two of them back to back. One very busy summer, um, and so. I, but one of the lessons that I learned on Hellbride really by the time I got to it, we weren't far off shooting. And I realized that the movie was lighter than I'd always thought it was. Um, the, the script felt darker and stranger and, and the movie, it was, I had to kind of realize that the movie wanted to be a romantic comedy. The movie didn't want to be a horror movie that was parodying romantic comedy. It became a romantic comedy that just happened to have people getting their mouths stitched shut and, you know, stuff like that in it. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. So once I bowed down to the fact that actually structurally I'm a romantic comedy, um, it, that meant that that did dictate a whole bunch of stuff about whether characters lived or died um, and about you know how dark, how bleak different set pieces in it went. Because tonally somehow, well, I think we'd even like cast it and I was still doing rewrites and realising, no, this needs to come up. And, you know, in terms of the, the 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 darker bits need to be lighter. This is ending up feeling like a, a kind of screwed up, um, I don't know, not exactly a Beetlejuice vibe, but closer to that than than kind of, you know, the darker, the much darker flecked idea mm. I had for it to start with. Now, these, these this is, I mean, certainly Hellbride is, is, is a... Is... Low budget movie and oh Christ yes. <laughs> so so when how do you balance your want for creativity and the knowledge of how much things cost to shoot? You know the the do do you do you do you allow yourself to go wherever you can and worry about production values when it comes to right, making it a shooting script ready to produce in terms of a spec script or are you conscious of the spec script matching? the production ambitions, whoever you might go into collaboration with? Uh, I think 
That's a really interesting question. Um, it's one I ask I myself th- all the time, so I'm hoping <laughs> you're going to give me the answer, Pat. <laughs> I think that I, at some point in the creative process, mm-hmm. I realise with the script, this is one for me or this is one for someone else. Okay. And if it's one for someone else, I let the budget the, the all of the kind of production value stuff of it creeps up because I realise that it's not quite it's going to be someone else's problem but it is almost like if I'm writing something for me I know the uh, the stuff that I shoot is you know micro budgety type stuff mm-hmm. whereas a lot of the other projects that I've worked on uh, whether it's in a kind of script doctor capacity or doing a couple of drafts and then somebody else writes it uh, or just writing a script and, and just sort of wholesale selling it to somebody else mm. um i know that that i can loosen up a bit about in terms of what i'm writing whereas if i'm writing it for me something like um uh i've got a script called your lying eyes which i love it's one of the my favorite things that i've ever written mm. um and i think and at some point on there on your lying eyes i realized i didn't want to direct it i wanted somebody else to to direct and we've got a, a, a can't announce their name, but we, we've got a director signed on that. Excellent. I'm very, 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 very happy with. Um, and I, I think they're going to bring a far better vision to that movie than I would have been able to. And it's a script that I loved, but mm. as soon as I realised there's something in that that I thought this isn't one of mine, um, this is this is one that's going to go out and someone else is going <laughs> to yeah. do something hopefully really cool with it. Whereas Killer Apps, which I mentioned, um, I don't think it ever really crossed my mind that that wouldn't be one of mine. I don't know quite where that works out. So for something like Killer Apps, I'm very aware of the budget all the way through because I'm thinking, all right, well this is you know this is only going to this is only ever going to be something that's made for you know at the ceiling tens of thousands uh, and at the lower floor you know as little as we can get it in the can for. Um, it's 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 never going to be, uh, you know, in the kind of quarter of a million or two million or wherever. It's never going to be in that bracket. Um, and so I think when I was putting something like that together, I'm always conscious of, yeah, this needs to, to fit the niche, you know. No, no, no. It's, 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 it's. Um, I, you know, I'm, I'm not, I've not, I'm yet to make a feature film, and I've been developing stuff, and it's been an interesting part of the conversation with the producers on the creative front, because there's the, there's the initial. Ta-da! Look how clever I am, and then there's the we can't afford that. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. so and which is fine. It's not a, that's not a gripe, but it's a it's been an interesting learning curve. And I think I mean from from your experience, and then looking looking at people, if you if somebody listening to this now isn't someone who's 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 had a feature film produced from a screenplay they've written, and they're looking to sort of hone their writing skills, mm-hmm. I mean I think and tell me what you you think from your from your experience. I don't think worrying about production costs is something you need to worry about if you're trying to develop yourself as a writer. I think, I think that you, that's a conversation to have when somebody's on board and wants to make. It. I think that I think that's true. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. The, 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 effectively, if you're if you're writing a uh, particularly if you're writing a, script, a spec script that you're just hoping people will look at and go. Um, Hey, this is fantastic. Yeah. Then, as you're absolutely right, that's the point where the conversation will come in in terms of scaling up or scaling down the budget. I had a I had a meeting in London a couple of years ago. It didn't pan out, but I uh, I had a meeting with someone who said, you know, we love this script and it's way too low budget for us. Can you rewrite it with a much higher budget in break in mind? Uh, and I was sitting there thinking, Jesus, that, you know, I spent all this time trying to be sensible about these things. Um, and uh, so yeah, so but that is the point for that conversation. Mm. Um, I. For for people who are writing spec scripts, um, my my 
My piece of advice on that, I think particularly, is the treatment, to get an absolutely killer treatment, mm. because people will read a treatment on an email and they will not read a script. Yeah. Uh, the only way that you're going to get them to open, you can write an amazing 100-page script, but no bugger's going to read it unless you've written the most kick-ass treatment that they can read as, you know, uh, that they can read in a, a minute. Um, and then they can get a feel for what it is, and then they'll go, ooh, and then they'll open the thing. But it's like the key that opens the door. So are you, talk, are you talking there about a sort of one sheet that brings together in yeah. 400 words what this is all about? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, okay. um, and I, I think there, you'll also hear pe hear people sort of say it has to have this or it has to have that or it mustn't have this. I've particularly heard people talk about treatments and say it mustn't ever include dialogue. Uh, and as far as I'm concerned, th there are no rules to these things, and I think people need to play to their strengths. I'd be a bloody idiot if I didn't include dialogue on any treatment that I was sending out mm. because my dialogue's my selling point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, it, it, it's it, there's always going to be a couple of lines in one of my regardless. Of, you know, it's sort of like, I'll stand by it, regardless of how much people hate anything I've written. They, they'd have to grudgingly give me, yeah, but somewhere in there, there's a couple of lines that I like, mm. um, and they're the ones that I need on the treatment. They're the ones that you know, if you if you've written an, a, if whatever your strength is, I think needs to shine out of that treatment. You. If you're amazing you. at you know whatever element. So obviously, horror is your bag, yes, and and horror is you know from. Horror, a bit like porn, isn't it? It's sort of whenever, whenever there's been a movement in, uh, in 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 audio or the moving image, horror and porn were kind of fighting with each other to get the most popular audiences. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So a lot's been done with horror over the sort of last century or so in terms of film. So what do you think keeps the challenge for you as a creator to to freshen it up with something new to the table that you might bring? I. I've mentioned a couple of times, and, uh, and I kind of stand by it, I think horror works like a trump suit. Um, as soon as you put elements of horror into a screenplay that otherwise would fit any other genre, it becomes a horror film. Um, Hellbright gets sold as a horror film. As I say, effectively, it's a romantic comedy. Structurally and in terms of intent, it's a romantic comedy. But as soon as you put horror elements into it, it becomes a horror movie. Therefore, if you kind of take that idea to its logical conclusion, a horror movie can be almost anything, um, as long as as long as you, there are... And even, even the elements you have to drop in, there's no great um strict rules for you know what i mean if you if you stick a ghost in it it becomes a horror movie if you stick a chainsaw massacre in it it becomes a horror movie if you stick some kind of um dark flecked elements into mm. any other genre or narrative it suddenly gets billed as a horror movie so i've never really seen it as a um as a restriction i uh i, I once had a, uh, a meeting with a guy who, who said to me, um, you are, uh, this was his advice to me as a screenwriter. He said, you are in a box and the box says horror on it. Do not try and escape from your box. Do not resent your box and always know that there are a hell of a lot of people out there who'd love to have a box. I thought, yeah, that's good advice. I don't necessarily, you know, I don't want to turn around and write Finding Nemo 2 or, or 3. Mm, yeah. um, you know, but uh, but within horror, it's such a huge playground because effectively I can write what the hell I like as long as there is, you know, my um, I, I did a movie called The Devil's Music, which is a, a rock and roll documentary. 
Um, it's a documentary about a fictional musician, but it hits enough beats that are are horror based that it gets marketed and reviewed as a horror movie. Mm. And so, just even within the stuff that I've done, you're going from kind of thrillers to rom coms to fake documentaries to whatever. Uh, so I, I can't really feel restricted by the genre when it, it's it's kind enough to give me this much freedom. Yes, no, but but it's like that. What I mean though is is it's not so much you being a box. It's more the fact that there's a lot of horror out there. Oh, I see what you mean. So yeah, yeah, yeah. so no, that was interesting what you were saying. I mean, I wasn't, but, but, <laughs> but 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 I mean also in addition, you know, when you sit down with that blank page, looking at the flicking cursor, and you're going right, what do how do I add something else to the horror canon? I understand mm-hmm. that idea that I mean crimes. You know, if you think of like Straw Dogs getting remade, yeah, that, yeah, yeah. that played at horror film festivals. Well, Sam Peckinpah wasn't playing at the equivalent of Fright Fest in the seventies, was he? When he no, made the original. But like now, we've kind of we've accepted that horrors are brought, and it's weird to think that something like Don't Look Now and Wicker Man, people didn't classify them as any. They couldn't classify them, and obviously, we wouldn't think of anything but horror films. But yeah, at the absolutely. time when they come out, people were like, "Oh, what? Where do these fit?" So for you, trying to when you're sitting down, like I say, looking at and you, you've got your ideas, you've got your title, and you've got, you've got your basic treatment mapped out as to where you might want to go, and you, you, your compass has decided what they're going to get at the end <laughs> or what they're not going to get at the end. How do you, how do you approach it? Where you kind of you know I'm going to I'm going to add something to the canon. What how does that how does that challenge feel to you? Do you mean in terms of doing something kind of genre-defining? Yeah, because or... I think because I think horror is a bit like a one is is full of one-upmanships, isn't it? You know, it's like yeah. there's there's always that idea of it's not been done before. So even if it's just you know, I mean, I'm going to try and think of something now. Um, you know, the person that, I'm, I've got books around me. That's all I can see in front of me. It's like, <laughs> you know, the person the film that's got the person that died because someone shoved a Spanish dictionary in their mouth. You know, that's mm. that's a mem. You know, it's not exactly the most imaginative thing in the world, but it. But it could become defining and imaginative in a yeah, yeah. in the context of the right film. So therefore, it's that. I think we're. I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, I'm. I've not made any films, and I'm trying to get them made. And I kind of think that's what is spurring stuff of what I'm doing. But also, you want to. But also, there's that challenge to give a nod and pay homage to what's gone before, because horror fans are also quite Catholic in taste, aren't they? As well. So there's that. There's that fine line between going out on your own and going, "Hey, look at this! I've done something new," and I'm going, "Yeah, but come on." Yes. Do some horror for us, please. <laughs> yeah, I know what you mean. There and there is an expectation. There is an expectation that it, um, that that you'll give them if you're going to give them something new, that you'll give them something old as well. Mm. Um, I, you know, I think you can. They want you to go a little bit off the map, but they they don't want to go that far off the map. I think the audiences generally they like to. Uh, or if you are going to go in off in really really weird tangents, I think they need to know that that's what they're in for, and that's one of the things where where marketing campaigns if they they try and sell something that's actually quite a uh, a weird horror as just fitting a kind of slasher template i think that's where audiences get really hacked off for it yeah. i think that if they know that they're in for something that all right this one's just out to mess with your head as long as they're sitting down for that then they're, they're game on for it but i think if it you know so um i i try and uh, i hope I always care about my characters. I care mm-hmm. about my characters an awful lot. Mm. Um, I, I, I think, you know, if I'm not genuinely heartbroken and guilt-stricken to kill these people on paper uh, after spending, you know, months, if not years, thinking about them, then how the hell am I expecting anybody to care after spending, you know, an hour with them um, in a movie? So, so I try and work the characters 
um, and sometimes I'm more successful than others. But but I think if you can, even if the situation has familiarity to it just from kind of genre tropes or whatever if you're putting a person that you can make people care about into that situation then that the movie becomes it's a very different kind of experience and so i guess that's you know i guess i try not to worry too much about um about whether or not the movie itself is an entirely unique experience as long as the character at the core of it is relating to the audience and giving them something, meeting that person that they've never had before, you know? I think, I mean, I, I, I feel like saying that's the right answer because I feel like, because, <laughs> you know, because there is a thing where I think sometimes there's, a, there's, a, there's an unnecessary race for novelty. Yeah, which, yeah. Which is exciting, what, like a firework going off, but it doesn't sustain 90 minutes of action No, at absolutely. All. It's like, you know, the opening 10 minutes, you go, wow, look where I am. And then they've got nowhere to go. And you're like, whatever. But actually, the thing that sustains any film, horror, drama, rom-com, whatever, is that I kind of think that there might even be a, a human somewhere there that, that yeah. might have said that if they were in this situation. Because we, we as, yeah, a, as a screenwriter, you're stuck with the idea that, like, in real life, nothing makes sense. But in a script, it's got to make sense or else the ending... Can't work. Certainly in a certainly in a genre movie where yeah, yeah. logic and setup and payoff is all part of the fun and games of it. Um, so what we, I think we should. I mean, ha, given what you said about the house on the witch pit, and given how little information there is about it, can people actually get hold of it to see it? No. That's what. I, that's what <laughs> I thought. I just thought I'd check to just to see if I wasn't a complete idiot. Um, it's. I, I've set myself uh, that it, it, when did it premiere? It premiered twenty uh, first of January, twenty sixteen. That was the day where it, it played at the festival, and then we smashed it on stage. You, uh, we you're working a very, you're working a very inverse capitalist model, there, aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, I, I think it, it's kind of a reaction to the fact that uh, I wanted to try and keep myself interested in a, a, a kind. Of, I, I can't describe it as an ongoing artistic. That I, I don't. You know, it, it's a movie, and I like making movies. Um, but I think that there's been a case, particularly actually, even going back when Trash House came out. Trash House uh, came out in the UK or uh, in 2006, mm -hmm. and we were really lucky for uh, an incredibly low-budget movie that we'd basically shot in a warehouse in Shrewsbury. We got a really wide DVD release. It was in like multiple copies in every blockbuster in the country, and so I was like, Jesus, this is this is like my movie. Uh, so that was like incredibly intimidating. But what I then found out was that that night, it of course went up on BitTorrent. Um, and then I couldn't sell any other territories at all afterwards because they all the replies I just got were no, this movie's everywhere, and there were like physical bootlegs of it in in like um, uh, some of the territories further afield, mm. uh, and so the movie it was like a busted flush the day after it had come out in the UK because as soon as that had happened it was dead and gone. Mm. Um, and so I think that always kind of stuck in my head and I always thought I really like the idea of just drawing this inevitable process of its ubiquity out a little bit especially in this digital age where you can see any damn thing at any point 
Um, I rather like the idea that I go, yeah, there was this movie and some people saw it and you didn't. Uh, I thought I thought there was something really interesting about that. But I set myself a, a final deadline that I'm going to stop dicking around with it um, four years <laughs> to the day after it first premiered. So I'm gonna we're going to lock it for uh, January the 21st, 2020. We're going to lock it and then I am going to step away from <laughs> step away from the movie Higgins. You know, it, it, you've done enough. So I think is that. Between... By the way, can I just rewind a second there? Is is that advice the uh, you know like the, the the big advice of no one knows anything? Do, yes. Do, do you think stop dicking about is an advice to filmmakers? Then? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Basically, <laughs> stop dicking about definitely. Um, <laughs> but so yeah, sorry, sorry. My my incredibly <laughs> my incredibly well thought out post production period, rather than just being me messing yeah, yeah. around the movie. Of course, of course, um, yes. But I will step away from it come January 2020. I don't know whether there'll be other versions between then and now. It kind of depends how tied up I get with, uh, as I said, we're, we're hoping things are going to go ahead very fast with killer apps. And then if that happens, I'm going to be stepping away from Witch Pit for a while anyway, and we probably won't see another manifestation yeah. of it this year. Um, but out of all the different... And, I mean, the versions that, the version that played at Horror on Sea versus the version that was available for the one night were very, very different ver different moves, even almost down to genre. I mean, yeah. this wasn't a movie where I changed four scenes. It effectively went almost from a cinematic narrative to a documentary, and we're going to take it in other directions from there as well. So, I mean, it's, it's a vastly different movie. No, I like, I like, I like, the, I like the dogma you've you've given to it. I think that's <laughs> this. I'm all for it. There was uh, I had one of the guests I had on did a he, Jason Fight did a um, did a no budget um, he did a no budget found footage film shot in Suffolk somewhere, right? Um, called Beyond Evil: The Dead of Night, and it was really spooky because he's telling me about all the kind of inter interlocking weird things that happened to them as a story. Like, you know, and, and we're talking like cast members died and stuff like during the oh, post-production oh, and things like real sort of weird things were happening. And then while we're recording the podcast, we lost the connection and couldn't get it back. And I actually put the podcast out with with no ending because I thought I had to go on and say I, I went on and jokingly said, and I never did speak to Jason again. And it was true; it was actually true. And it was this, this weird conversation about how the film had been this kind of trial by you know cabin fever on a on a contained film set, and then post production it ended up being sort of these other catalogues of um, of you know tragedy as much as, as as well as trials and tribulations. And then to top it off, he's telling me the story, and then the end, he couldn't even finish it because because technology got involved. So we that's brilliant. That's that's the podcast equivalent of the camera lying on its side and, and just exactly. carrying on rolling at the I, end of the found footage movie, isn't it? Because we because obviously I just rung him up on the mobile afterwards and went, look, we're not going to re-record that because that's the perfect ending. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, I think I'm just looking to, looking through your catalogue. People who are listening who might want to watch your films if in the UK and they subscribe to Amazon. There's at least three or four, isn't there, of your... Oh, your... yeah, yeah. Uh, there's, there's loads on Amazon Prime. Um, Devil's Music uh, is on Amazon Prime. The, uh, Killer Killer's on there, I think. Yeah, no, uh, it is. Yeah. It never, seems to come, never seems to come up on the list. Um, uh, Trash House is on there. Hellbride's on there. Um, and, yeah, other than that, the, they're all on DVDs and Blu-rays and whatnot. The Death Tales movies are... Uh, I don't think they're on any of the streaming. No, they might be on iTunes, the Death Tales movies. Okay. But anyway. Yeah. Well, look, if you, if, you want, if you want to send me uh, links to anything uh, to do with the films, I'll put them in the show notes if that helps people watch them. 
Um, cool, well, that's I'll nice. Thank gladly you. do that. And uh, it just takes me to say thank you very much for giving us your time on the Britflix podcast. Oh, it's been an absolute pleasure, man. Absolute pleasure. The Britflix podcast is provided absolutely free. If you want to help me get the podcast out to more people, please take a moment to leave a review on iTunes. Or if you want to help me out directly, there's a link in the show notes to my Patreon page. All contributions are welcome. And the music is by Chris Reed of thecomposers.tv. Hey y'all, Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.